Good morning. Uh, as we uh, continue our Whispers series today, as we head towards Christmas and we think about how the whole Bible points us towards Jesus, I really want to draw your attention right at the start here about how uh, God comes to a very ordinary family. Uh, I'm going to read to you Isaiah 53, which is um, probably one of the most famous prophetic statements uh, about Jesus. Uh, and I'm reading today from uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message Bible. It captures it with a freshness. Um, and the early disciples identified, oh, this is talking about our friend Jesus, our Lord Jesus. Let me read it for you, the first eight or so verses. Isaiah 53. Who believes what we have heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence, justice miscarried and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare. Yeah, imagine those early disciples thinking, yes, this is talking about our friend Jesus. And it all started saying that Jesus was nothing special to look at. He was nothing special. There was nothing humanly that attractive about him. He was no superstar in that regard. And he was given an incredibly tough assignment, the assignment of a suffering servant, a lamb going to the slaughter. Have you ever had a tough assignment? I think today's message is going to give some hope if you've ever thought that you've been given a tough assignment. You know, I've noticed that uh, some people can go through their whole life thinking that they are the centre of the universe, kind of God's gift to the universe. But fortunately, most of us realise pretty early that we aren't that special. There are plenty of others who are more gifted, more beautiful, cleverer, funny, sporty, lucky, wealthy, healthy, flexible, fashionable, or whatever it is, whatever way we want to compare ourselves to others, there are plenty of others who have got more of it. And comparison is a killer. It's a joy killer. It's a hard lesson for us to learn, particularly in a world where God is not in the picture. And God's not in so many people's pictures. He's not part of their worldview. And so many people view themselves through the lens of comparison and the criticisms of others. 
I think most of us eventually realise that the comparison game is a curse. And the quicker we can get onto that, I think the better. The comparison game is a curse. I hope that today, as we think about this ancient story and how it links to the person of Jesus, that you will decide to stop playing the comparison game, or at least continue the process of stopping it. I really think it takes a sort of a reprogramming, a reprocessing ourselves to not constantly be comparing ourselves. Because paradoxically, when we play the comparison game over and over and over again, ultimately, we all lose. It's a bit like playing Russian roulette. Eventually, if you keep playing it, you lose. I really love it when I notice someone who keeps doing something that they're actually not very good at. We often give up on the things that we're not give up. You know, the person who can't sing very well, but they love it and they keep singing. Ooh, that's getting a little bit too close to home for me. Um, normally when we can't win something, when we can't do well at it, um, then because of the comparison game, we give up on it. And that's kind of sad, really. I, I, I saw a sprinter recently, um, a film of a race, and there was this uh, Tuvalu uh, uh, athlete competing in this uh, uh, international race. And I'm sure he was only in the race because he was the champion of Tuvalu. And I'm sure on the tiny Pacific island of Tuvalu, he is really fast, but not on the international stage. And it was kind of like watching a train wreck. The other athletes took off. And it was like he was running in mud with his work boots on. But what if he really likes running? He probably does. There's no harm without comparison, is there? And often comparison casts these deathly identity messages. Run, Forrest, run. He enjoyed running, but he wasn't very good at it. So generally, we grow up liking the things that we're better at than most people. Is that a coincidence? I don't think it is because when we're good at something, when we compare ourselves and we're, we, we go okay at it, it feeds our ego. And so I love it when I actually see someone who's, who's not particularly good at something and they, they, they know they're not great at it, but they enjoy it. And so they live on in the moment of it, choosing not to compare themselves. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we really do need to make peace with the hand that God has dealt us. And we need to, generally, if we aspire to a long life, because if he gives us a long life, we're certainly gonna lose in the comparison game, aren't we? You know, there are so many things that I can't do today like I used to be able to do them. So we have to get used to the idea that it's not about how we compare ourselves with others. And surely we live in a time where this comparison culture is screwing us over more than ever before. In a commercial world, one of the strategies of sellers uh, is to want you to be comparing yourself and, and so you're falling short, so you're motivated to buy their product or do what they want. In a broken world, we're also very tempted to only show our best self, not our real selves, particularly now in the Insta, Twitter and Facebook world. And so we end up living with this falseness and this hollowness. And so we're constantly in danger of elevating the opinion of us um, to a place of tyranny over us. Be careful, be very careful about whose opinion you actually care for, whose opinion you listen to. Don't be pushed around by the criticism of somebody that you wouldn't even ask their opinion of in the first place. So if we come back to Jesus with these thoughts. In our view of the Christmas story, if we try to view it through the eyes of the other people who lived with Jesus' family in Nazareth, Joseph and Mary's neighbours, it's a story 
of, a, of an illegitimate child born to a nothing kind of a family, a drifting in family, and they're now living an unspectacular life in a backwater village, a backwater village with a poor reputation. So we've got a disreputable kid to a nothing family in a nothing town about as far away from the capital and the centre of their religious life, Jerusalem, about as far as a Jew could actually live. And so this is the beginning point that Jesus grew up in. It's the beginning point where Jesus actually grew to realize that God was his father and he had a very special, a very special assignment for him to do. And through Jesus, I think we can actually learn that God has a special assignment for each of us. If we could use a card game illustration, that it's simply about us playing the cards that have been dealt to us regardless of how those cards compare to the cards that other people have. Because we're not actually playing this game of life against others. We actually, in purity, play this game for the audience of one. And Jesus had a special hand to play, and so do we. God's dealt a hand uh, to us that does not need to be compared to others. And the cards that we're dealt are not diamonds and clubs or jacks or aces. They're our time, our treasures, our talents, our life experiences, those things that we can play into the lives of others before our Father in heaven. These are the cards that we play in this 24-7 beautiful life that God has given. Well, our Old Testament story today is about a young woman who was dealt some very tough cards. And her story points us in parallel to Jesus, whispers of the names of Jesus. Um, she is one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. So let me tell you the story. It comes to us from Genesis chapter 29 and 30. The, the story starts with the patriarch Jacob, the old deceiver, fleeing from his family. He's got himself into trouble with his nuclear family and he flees away to his extended family, living many hundreds of kilometres away. And he sees uh, he sees Rachel um, and he is smitten by her. She is beautiful. And Rachel's father, Laban, likewise, is a wily character. And uh, his nephew, Jacob, starts working for him. And after a month, Laban says to Jacob, you just can't keep working here for free. How can I pay you? And Jacob thinks about this for a little while and says, I'll work for you for seven years if I can have your younger daughter, Rachel's hand in marriage. Seven years. And so the story unfolds uh, in Genesis chapter 29. Just let me read a couple of verses here from Eugene again, verses 16 to 19. Now Laban had two daughters. Leah was the older and Rachel the younger. Leah had nice eyes, but Rachel was stunningly beautiful. And it was Rachel that Jacob loved. So Jacob answered, I will work for you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, Eugene might actually be being a little bit gracious to Leah here. The expression that he translates, her eyes were nice, is quite disputed by different translated, translators. It's, it's a word describing her eyes that can be translated weak or tender, or perhaps in certain uh, circumstances, compassionate, caring, nice. Anyway, the nice eyes that she, she had nice eyes, but her youngest, her youngest sister was simply a stunner. And we get this picture that Leah, as the older sister, had grown up in the shadow of her sister all of her life. The story is intriguing. And I suspect that most women ask which character in this story they'd prefer to be. They'd probably go for, for Rachel. Why? Well, in the comparison game, Rachel 
is a winner. Rachel's beautiful. She caught the eye of Jacob, who fell wildly in love with her. And as they say, this is a story that's as old as the Bible. And so Jacob willingly continues to work for his father-in-law-to-be, and it says that the seven years passed by very quickly because of his love and desire for Rachel. And uh, now this story is tracking the family of God. The, the, the family that God chose to break into in a special way, to have a special relationship. And off the top of your head, you'd think, well, okay, if God's going to focus his kingdom, his teaching onto one family, these must be a family who are going to have it pretty together. You know, they play such of a big part in God's story here on earth, and their lives must be pretty well worked out. But in reality, the story of Jacob and the family and the nation of Israel is a story of brokenness and heartache, which is comforting in so many ways, because just like many of us, our lives have all of this aspect as well. However, God is able, as you can see, to bring great hope and beauty out of their shame and out of their disappointment, just as he can in our lives. And so if we sort of fast forward just a few verses that all was fast moving in, the, in, in Genesis 29 there, seven years later, we get to the wedding day. And it turns out that old Laban is that wily old trickster himself. And in a twist that's so hard for us to fathom, he actually sneaks his older daughter into the bridal suite that night instead of the beautiful and promised Rachel, his younger daughter. And I guess at a superficial reading, it might be easy for us first up to actually feel quite sorry for Rachel. You know, this, you know, this love story, her perfect romance has been uh, has spoiled. Her wedding day has been spoiled by the deceit of her father. But just in those few short verses, seven years have gone by. And in that seven years, the older daughter, uh, Leah, clearly hasn't attracted the right guy. So what is a father to do? <laughs> Surely Laban, not this. But yes, he comes up with the plan. He subs in the older, ugly daughter. Imagine the collusion that had to happen to pull this off. And think about it from the different characters in the story's perspective. It's horrifying, but particularly for Leah. She's the third world wheel. She's the, the, uh, the underdog, the woman that no man seemed to want. She wasn't pretty like, uh, like uh, Rachel. So her father had to trick somebody into marrying her. Of course, the added confusion here being that he, he married her to the very man who was desperately head over heels in love with her younger sister. And thinking about Leah, how hurtful must it have been for her to spend that wedding night with Jacob knowing that he was making love to her, thinking he was making love to Rachel. How painful and probably angry words that Jacob spoke in the morning light. You're not Rachel. How did that feel for Leah? It must have been devastating. What a family, what a story. I don't think it matters whose shoes you stand in if you try and think this story through and you look at this series of events. This situation sucks for Rachel, it sucks for, Ray, for, for Jacob, and it sucks for Leah. What a complicated way to enter uh, into married life. What a crazy way to begin a family. It sounds like a crazy love triangle on Love Island, or what would Dr. Phil do with this one? So, so, 
Getting back to the story, in the morning, Jacob confronts his father-in-law Laban and they come to terms. They agree that after one week married to Leah, he would also get to marry Rachel, the beautiful Rachel, as his second wife. Now, um, polygamy was quite a common practice in those days. It's a very different world, obviously, to our world, which is messed up in its own kind of ways. Um, And so after a week of being married to Leah... He also marries Rachel and Leah very much becomes the third wheel in this marriage. Now imagine the hurt, the pain, the disappointment for uh, Leah as she began her marriage. She's obediently subbed in for her sister on her wedding night. It's a position she hasn't asked for. It's a role that was chosen for her. Surely adding to those seven years with her beautiful sister being betrothed to to be married and her not, um, those feelings of rejection, unworthiness, inadequacy, all of these things probably plagued her heart. While the scriptures mention multiple times how much Jacob loved Rachel, they never mention once that he loved or cared for Leah. And so understandably, like many of us do when we find ourselves in similar situations of pain or disappointment, it becomes very obvious to us that Leah tried desperately to be loved, but she was competing with her more beautiful and desirable Rachel, with whom Jacob was smitten. As we read on, we can see how she tried to be accepted and how she tried to be valuable to Jacob. And Leah does this by having babies. While her physical beauty was not anything to match her sisters, it turns out she was good at producing children and especially sons. And this was an extremely important cultural norm for a good wife in this culture. And Leah was amazing at this. She she quickly had four boys while Rachel remained childless and not for want of trying, I would say, reading between the lines of the story. So uh, maybe five years into this marriage triangle, four nil. Um, And now we move on to a new point of comparison that unfortunately turns competitive between the sisters. And the story moves from a comparison about beauty to that of a comparison around childbearing. The same battle, but just now in a different arena. And the next few pages of our Bible describe this growing dysfunction in the family. I'll let you read it for yourself and I encourage you to do that. But I just want to pause and grab a few final thoughts around this, what we can learn from Leah in this first five or six years of marriage. So the story of Leah reminds us that our struggling with questions about who we are and where we fit into this world is not new. It's a problem that has evolved. It's sorry, it's not a problem that's evolved with our social media or the age of the selfies. Um, this has been a really significant and important part of human life right from the very beginning. How do I fit into this world? How do I view myself? When we read on about the birth and naming of Leah's first four children. They give us this beautiful insight into this struggle for her and I think they offer us a hope with our own struggles. In Genesis 29 it provides a narrative that reveals how Leah progressively chose a name for each of her boys that was actually reflecting a deepening desire for connection with Jacob. Let me read a few of these for you. Uh, Firstly, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my 
misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Now the significant thing here is in the naming of the child. The word Reuben or the name Reuben literally means look, see or behold. So when she said the Lord has seen, she's sort of saying the Lord has Reubened my misery, if I can put it that way. So the thought here is that perhaps now that she has had this boy child, perhaps her husband would see her and love her. But notice a year or two into the marriage, as she has this first child, she's describing herself as being in misery. She then conceived again, and I'll read for you again. She conceived again, and she gave birth to a second son. And then she says, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And so she named him Simeon. And the word Simeon, or the name Simeon, means to hear, to hear. And so she's saying, the Lord has heard me. He's heard that I'm not loved and he's given me the second, the second boy. And so maybe perhaps the thought here is that now with two boys, perhaps not just the Lord would hear her, but her husband also would hear her and love her. And so again, uh, you know, three or four years into her marriage, she's describing herself as unloved. And uh, again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. So her third son, she, she's focusing on, uh, on being attached. And this word Levi means to be joined together or attached. And she's, and I guess the thought here is that she's still looking for that attachment, that oneness, not just physical with her husband, but that sense of a connected and attached life. And so five or six years into the marriage, we're seeing someone not heard, not loved, um, unattached and lonely even in marriage. And I guess if we're honest, all of us can be a little bit like Leah in this. All of us need to be seen. Uh, all of us feel the need to be heard. All of us feel the need uh, to be um, in a, in a meaningful connection. And revealed in the brokenness of this woman Leah, who found herself in an incredibly difficult situation is actually the heart cry, I think, of each one of us. We all need to be seen, we need to be heard, we crave connection. In fact, God created us for those things. And so just as Leah's world was shaped by these three questions, our identities are shaped by how these questions are answered in, world, in our world. Am I seen? Am I heard? Am I connected? Leah had a heartbreakingly sad perspective on who she was, a gut-wrenching, tragic way of viewing the world around her, of measuring her worth or measuring her value. She was looking to her husband to answer these questions. You'll notice that the, with these three boys, her, her focus is completely on her husband. She's looking to her husband to give her life worth and meaning. And maybe we aren't much different. Maybe we're looking for someone to give us worth and value. She was just waiting and hoping that with the birth of each new child, Jacob's attention would, would be to her. He would see her, he would hear her, and he would connect with her. That he would say something that made her feel accepted and loved and valued and wanted. And I think oh, that's all of us, isn't it? Just like Leah, we can find ourselves looking to the wrong people to answer our questions of identity or worth or not just the wrong people, just the very act that we're looking to people. Indeed, looking to people is mistake. Our solid foundation is actually to look beyond what mere mortals think and what they can speak into our lives. And I think 
Um, I love the fact that God is a God of transformation. He's a God of new beginnings. He's the God who speaks light into darkness and hope into hopeless situations. And that's exactly what happens here for for Leah. Because as we go on in the story, we'll see that Leah has a fourth son. And this son is later described by Jacob, his father, as a young lion. He's decisive, he's courageous. This son would go on to be the tribal leader of a tribe whose emblem was the lion, the tribe from which many generations later Jesus would be born, the lion who is the lamb. And she names this fourth boy Judah. And just as Leah's heart is revealed in the naming of her first sons, there's something here to be revealed that's quite beautiful in the birth of her fourth son. When she names her fourth boy, something has shifted between three and four. She conceived, let me read for you, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, and she stopped having children. Now the name Judah means praise and thanks. You see here, there's no mention of her husband. When Leah named her fourth son Judah, finally his name is not husband-centred, it's God-centred. Something has changed for Leah between the birth of Levi, her third son, and Judah, her fourth son. We need to realise that God's answers to our questions are far more important than the answers we receive from anyone else around us. She had most likely come to a place of realisation that she was seen, she was heard, and she was acknowledged by God and connected to him, no no matter, regardless of what was going on with Jacob. I am loved, I am accepted by my Father in heaven. We can never build a strong and healthy identity based on the way that others love and accept us. Imperfect people will never be able to love us perfectly, and neither can we live a fulfilled life by trying to gain other people's love and acceptance. Instead, we need to find our value and our worth in God who says we are loved, who says we are accepted. We need to search for our acceptance not in the opinions of others but in his perfect and unfailing love. Be encouraged, be assured that God loves you and has a special plan for you. And we need to discover this purpose and significance in what he says about us. The story goes on. In Genesis, I encourage you to read it. There are more complications and comparisons. There are no winners when sisters wrestle with one another. And perhaps Leah gives us a glimpse in the birth of Judah of what it looks like to drop out of this comparison game. This time, I will praise the Lord. That's the way we're supposed to live. If there's a lesson to be learned here, I think that's the lesson for us to learn. I will glorify the Lord. I will please my Father only. And the story goes on, and the beautiful but childless Rachel then goes on to show us the extent of the crazy that will come when we can't stop comparing. When we strive for what we think will give us value or work for what we think will bring us love, we miss out on the opportunity to simply rest in contentment. We misplace our worship, chasing things, you know, in this story like beauty or babies, but it can be anything, you know, our job, our career, our hopes, our dreams. We we, We place our hopes into things that really will let us down. But as this, as the story of Leah in the Bible shows us this in this comparison game there are no winners um, 
the wrestling sisters, they keep score and they stay miserable. It's only really by dropping out of the competition and determining instead to praise God regardless of our circumstances, I think that we, our lives move to a different place of victory, to a different place of peace. And God wants us to see how he can and will use anyone. Leah's life actually had an amazing purpose. She ended up being that great, 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 great grandmother to Jesus. So let's finish with a few thoughts about him. Uh, He's a descendant of this woman. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the promised warrior king, but he's born into humble circumstances, growing up with his father in heaven, revealing to him that he was not a warrior who would wield a sword, but his sword would be his words, words that could cut people free, cutting them free from earthly comparisons to be who they're truly meant to be, children of God. Jesus, born to be a king, but not a king who was restoring the ancestral glory of the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah, the Jewish people with their temple and their palace in Jerusalem. No, the king of a heavenly kingdom descending upon the earth in hearts of very ordinary people like you and me, creating churches that would spring up in every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the world. When we think of Leah, her story whispers the name of Jesus. This is a time I will call him Judah. This is a time I will praise the Lord. Let those words sink into our heart. I am seen. I am heard. I am known by him. This is a game changer when we let it work in our lives. God bless you.